Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, I'm here with some major contributors. Brother Macaroo and Brother Amos, I'm Gullah Jack, a.k.a. Russell A. Swilly. We're here to deal with the critical issues of our time. Clearly, as I travel the U.S., the mouth of the Mangamizi continues what we need to deal with it. A strong, resourceful, incorruptible brothers to deal with this dynamic power construct of white supremacy whose fear and hatred of the black man is at the heart of their treatment of Africans the world over. You know, twin with that is the fact that black people are no longer needed to maintain America's employment structure. That's been articulated by many, Brother Amos Wilson, Brother Sidney Wilhelm, and others. Those who reside within the employment structure are forced to accept all kinds of humiliation in his or her working day. People are being demeaned and mistreated on jobs that they have to have. You know, at the macro level, white supremacy is in fact, historically so, the human history, the cancer of human history, threatening even the ecosystem the balance of it all. It has destroyed autonomous culture. This culture, this comes from Susan Sontag. Of course, uh, Barbara Sizemore told us that the paradigm that we need to use or think about starts with identifying the problem, the causes, the solutions, and then the implementation. Suffice it to say, we lack power. To those who are involved in the conflict of indigenous Africans, Africans who are the descendant of slaves, I would just simply offer this. White supremacists don't see borders. They see the global white tribe under attack. What should our response be, given the fact that white supremacy is a worldwide dynamic and phenomenon? Brothers, take it where you want to. Bibi Fahodier, African family. That's a very good point. That last point you made, uh, read that again about the uh, white tribe, the global. I, I mean, it's so obvious, brother. I mean, I, in New Zealand, Australia, France, it doesn't matter where you are. You know, the white supremacists, they don't see borders. They see the global white tribe under attack. Right. And I, and I think that's, that's critical given the emergence of this uh, isolationist identity construction. It's, it's certainly not a movement. Uh, called the American uh, Descendants of Slavery, who are trying to isolate uh, Africans in America uh, from the rest of the African world, which is just absolutely ludicrous. Um, and, you know, I really think the whole thing is uh, certainly uh, influenced by the uh, the broader uh, nativist and white nationalist movement, but that's just a... A very valid point. I mean, you see, you saw when um, they put out this propaganda about the supposed assault on the white farmers in South Africa. And, you know, they may have gotten a reprieve with the reelection of Cyril Ramaphosa. We'll see how how much pressure is applied to him to continue to, you know, take the uh, land back from the thieves. Uh, but they they do see it as it, it's a global white supremacy uh, dynamic, and anyone that's pushing isolationism, trying to isolate the African family, is uh, is 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 just uh, you know it. If the white supremacists did not you know say, look, y'all need to go out and do this. I mean, it's uh, it, it's certainly it's certainly amazing that someone could have that kind of mentality. But we see all kinds of things. Uh. Just like to start with some positive news since we just talked about this last week. We were talking about our political prisoners, really our warriors, really our warriors. I mean, you got 
you got to give these brothers and sisters credit for being <laughs> warriors. Okay, they're they're warriors every much in in the sense of of uh, Denmark VZ and and Nat Turner and others. Uh, two members of the Move organization uh, were released uh, from prison. Uh, Janine Janine Phillips, Africa, six age sixty three, and Jeanette Janet Holloway, Africa, age sixty eight. And th these sisters have been in prison almost forty one years. Now they didn't go to prison because of the bombing, the the Wilson Good bombing when when they dropped the bomb on the the Move headquarters and destroyed an entire black community. That was in 1985. They went to prison in 1978 as a result of a police raid on the move quarter, on the move headquarters. And uh, but these sisters came out of prison unbent and unbroken, just as strong as Queen and Zinger, Yar Santewa, Manorinas. I mean, Harriet Tubman, they just came out of prison very strong. Uh, no compromise, no anything. They maintain their innocence because there's a lot of evidence that the police actually shot one of their own officers and killed them, uh, even though the move people were defending themselves because that's what we used to do. We used to defend ourselves. Uh, so, I mean, that was some very positive news. Now, there are three three members that are still in, uh, Delbert Orr, Africa, Charles Goodman, Africa, and Chuck Sims, Africa, are still, still incarcerated. So we want these uh, three brothers freed also. And we also want to keep Ramona, Africa, who's been very ill, uh, you know, in our, in our prayers and in our thoughts, and her and Pam, Africa, and the others. So uh, this, is, this was very, very good news. Uh, there's potentially some news that, uh, that, that could be, positive I, it's, it's difficult to say but um our good brother the revolutionary imam jamil el amin formerly known as h rap brown uh has filed an appeal it's in the 11th circuit of the united uh, states court of appeals which uh covers uh georgia where he was uh, initially sentenced and they they went through of course you know we had a program we had a uh, brother ibrahim Abdullah Ibrahim uh, from the uh, Imam Jamil Action Network uh, on uh, you know last year, and we um, we we actually went through the trial. I mean, the, the how the whole case evolved. I mean, this whole thing started with a traffic stop, and then they send the two brothers out to arrest this high-profile uh, uh, activist at night. They got twenty. They got all day to arrest this brother. And they sent these guys out at night and. So they, uh, they, they found a lot of uh, discrepancies there that uh, may grant him a new trial. Of course, Mamiya is supposed to, is supposed to be coming up for a new trial, Mamiya Abu-Jamal. So those are just a couple of positive things um, that took place. Uh, so I, I'll stop on the positive for the moment because I got some other things that took place that are just very disturbing. But go ahead, Brother Amos. <clears throat> Another positive is... A couple of weeks back, we had the brother Irritated Genie on the show, and he talked about his travels in, in East Africa, specifically in Kenya. And I know this past week, the courts announced in Kenya that they were going to continue the ban on homosexuality, same-sex uh, engagement. So this was a victory on the continent of resisting the homosexual assault that's been happening or that is currently happening on the African continent. So I thought that was another positive victory. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a series of disturbing events. I call it a reign of terror. I mean, it's almost <laughs> as if you have a, a, a Boko Haram or Islamic state or Al Qaeda in our community, uh, several several young people, young young people of African descent, were were killed over the quote unquote Memorial Day weekend, and the, these are normally just random acts of violence. I, one incident took place in Chesapeake, Virginia, and 
people were gathered just to have fun in the park, just to have a cookout, play some music, have some fun. And some uh, people that weren't even part of this, didn't even live in this neighborhood, came to the event. Two groups got in an argument. They bring guns everywhere they go, or obviously, uh, but not for not to defend the community. <laughs> and they started shooting. Ten people were shot, and one brother, twenty-eight years old, was killed. And it's like you can't just go anywhere and have fun. Another uh, event, very disturbing, uh, took place in um, in Washington. D.C., there was this young brother named uh, Maurice Scott, 15 years old, uh, an honor student at Somerset Prep School, all, already being recruited as a D1 basketball player. He and uh, his nine-year-old cousin were just walking to the store and gunned down south in southeast D.C. Gun, just somebody just rode by and just shot in this in this. This life is gone, and then the one that really just uh, probably got me more than any others was the nine-year-old Marquia Simone Dixon in Richmond, Virginia. Mm. Okay, so he, the family is going to a cookout, a community cookout in a park. People are having fun. They're sitting around eating, listening to the music, just having fun. Families out in the park. A group of ignorant Negroes on the basketball court. They're playing basketball while the people in the park are having fun. They bring guns to the basketball court. They get in an argument on the basketball court. For what? I mean, it's not like they out there, you know, competing for the NBA championship or something. Pull guns, start shooting. This little nine-year-old girl out there with her, uh, mother and father and 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 and, and other uh, siblings starts running, get shot in the head, kill. And I mean, I just call it it's it's a reign of terror. I mean, it's no different from the way Boko Haram will just uh, blow up Africans shopping at a marketplace, you know, in Nigeria, or the way uh, the Islamic State will blow up people that are attending uh, the Friday prayers at a mosque in Iraq. I mean, it's almost the same kinds of conditions. People people just trying to gather just to have a moment of, you know, relaxation from the, the white supremacy that's always prevalent. We just want to get together sometime and just take a moment to relax, just enjoy one another, just be around people that, uh, having fun or uh, enjoying one another, you know, dancing, eating good food or whatever, telling jokes, doing the things that we do that we used to do and just take for granted. And here comes some fool shooting. It's a freaking reign of terror, man. And it's like, you know, I say that we're in a vice between the state on one side and you got these savages on the other side that have no regard for human life. They ain't got no courage when their own people are being gunned down by enemies of our people. They have no courage for that. But they'll pull out a gun and start shooting and, and, and just kill innocent people in, in a heartbeat. So um, It was a story about three or four months ago where at the AMC Theater in Charlotte, well, in Concord Mills, it was a brother who had paid for a seat. He went to the movie theater, and it was a, a another person in his seat, and he approached him, and you know he informed him that you know these were the seats that he paid for. Yeah, he 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 carried his mother to the theater. Mm-hmm. He, his, wow. he 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 carried his mother to the theater. But go ahead with the story. And then the other the other guy. Gets up out of the seat, and then as the brother's getting ready to sit down, he turns around and shoots him in the leg. In in the theater, over a seat. 
that that wasn't his. That wasn't his. And and the bad part about that story is, his female companion told him, "Say, we sitting in somebody else's seat. Let's just move. Let's just move to our seats." This is a race to the bottom in terms of our descent into a deeper level of sickness. I mean, you got to ask the question, why? You know, I mean, <laughs> we can come up with multiple reasons, you know, as to why this kind of thing is taking place. But, you know, once again, what is the solution to this internecine carnage, brother? What is the solution to this internecine carnage? And we can sit here and rationalize all day long why this is happening. You know? I mean, some people are under the impression that, you know, never give up on people because people can be restored and redeemed. And in some cases, that's true. But there are other cases where, you know, cancer's got to be cut off or cut out. What's the brother's name um, in New York? Brother um, Sutek. Okay. He always had a saying where he used to say, uh, death to the Negro. Hmm. He said, in order for the black man to live, the Negro must die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Years ago, we had a statement uh, mm -hmm. saying, oh, axiom, inside every Negro, there's a black man. <laughs> See, I mean, you could take that statement figuratively or you can take it hypothetically. I mean, well, I mean, it, it, it's true. Um, and several have articulated that concept. E.B. Du Bois, and of course, Dr. Wilson took it to another level. E.B. Du Bois talked about the double consciousness. Uh, of course, Dr. Wilson, a preeminent scholar, he talked about uh, various forms of possession, you know, the latent possession mm -hmm. being one. And uh, of course, the uh, latent possession he articulated was the most difficult. Uh, to exercise because to identify with the European was synonymous with identifying with the self. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, we always, people always push, you know, unity. Um, and they have this idea that it's going to be a utopia of, of black people uniting under one goal. But when you really look out here and you see what's happening and you have these incidents of people committing these atrocities in most cases against innocent people. Oh God. The only response that I can think of is that we're in a double war. You know, we're in a war with Europeans first who cause our people to be like this. And then we we also have war with a lot of our own people who either have not been exposed to the information to change or who do not want to come out of a certain lifestyle than a lifestyle than a lifestyle that is detrimental to even our own survival. When when you can't even go to a theater mm. and sit inside of the seat that you paid for without getting shot. Or you can't go to the park and have a good time without having to worry about being hit by a bullet. That's a problem. Dr. Ture used to insist that um, when he was head of the Black Panther Party that there were more guns being disseminated on the East Coast than all of the gangs on the East Coast today. You know, I, Kwame Ture, of course, you know, I met him at Stokely Carmichael. He said, that was his saying, every Negro is a potential black man. That was his saying. Uh but he was he was saying that with within the context of struggle. These Negroes are not going to become African centered or black men or anything without conditions, conditions being changed. And what happened in the sixties, you know, the general the the the, the, the Kwame Therese and H. Rap Brown, Huey Newton, and and all of the Asada uh, Shakur, all of the people that were born in the 1940s that rose up in the 60s, they had a positive impact on the guys in the streets, on the guys in prison, right? I mean, Bunchy Carter was in prison, okay? 
He was the head of the Slauson's gang. They called him the mayor of the ghetto. And he was first attracted to the uh, the nation of Islam when he was got went to prison. But then after Malcolm was killed and the Panthers came along, he 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 switched to join the Panthers. When he came out, all of the brothers that had been following him, not all of them, but a lot of the brothers that had been following him in the Slauson gang joined the Panthers. Okay? Fred Hampton was a highly articulate young man. He had been in the NAACP, but he was also very streetwise. You know, he didn't join the Blackstone Rangers or anything like that, but he knew these guys. And he could work with them. As a matter of fact, when uh, Jagger Hoover thought he could pull the same trick on Fred Hampton and Jeff Fort, Jeff Fort was the head of the Blackstone Rangers, now known as the, what is the Black Peastone Nation or Peace something. Peastone Nation. Yeah. El Rookins. El, El Rookins yeah. at one time, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he's on lockdown out there in, uh, what's your joint out there in Colorado? Florence. Yeah, out there in Florence, ADX. Um, Hoover had been very successful manipulating the Panthers and the US organization in Los Angeles. But the interesting thing, what a lot of people don't know is the night before Bunchy and Geronimo were killed, not Geronimo, Bunchy and John Huggins were killed, okay. Geronimo and Bunchy had a meeting with Karenga. They had worked out a deal that, was, that, that would solve the problem because initially they, they worked together. There was no conflict. As a matter of fact, uh, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and Karenga all come out of Donald Warden's African American Association in Oakland. Mm -hmm. They were all part of the same organization. Yeah, Merritt College. And when and and uh, and us, the us organization, and this is where people talk about Karenga's an agent and all that. Look, all these organizations <laughs> heavily infiltrated, and we can talk about that in just a minute. But Karanga and and, and, and and Geronimo and Bunchy had worked this problem out that they had about who was going to control this program at UCLA. Apparently somebody, some uh, people didn't want that to happen. And so a disturbance was called, was caused at UCLA and Bunchy and John Huggins wound up getting killed. But the FBI had been sending letters saying, you know, signed by Karanga or signed by Huey Newton and all this kind of and I guess no, nobody was aware that this COINTELPRO thing was was operating the way it was. They just they weren't they weren't aware of it. Okay, so they just didn't have. Just he would pick up the phone and call talk call Karanga. You know him. Yeah, yeah. Pick up the phone. Look, man, what's going? On? What's what's up with this letter? See, when they tried that with Fred Hampton and Jeff Ford, that's what they did. Okay. Fred said, wait a minute, I, I ain't got no beef with Jeff. I ain't got no beef with the Rangers. I mean, I want them to be politicized. Yeah. And they picked a conversation. Oh, this is an FBI trick. Mm -hmm. Okay? So when when Kwame says, I, I'm going all, 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 all out around the barn to, to make this point, but when Kwame said every Negro is a potential black man, he knew that the, you have to create revolutionary conditions. Otherwise, the consciousness is not going to change. I mean, you know, Jane Brown just doesn't get up and say, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud without a meeting. You know, Marvin Gaye doesn't, you know, say, you know, uh, all of these, you know, mercy, mercy me, you know, all this. he doesn't, without the conditions. I think mean, it's always, yeah. it's always going to be Negroes, even under the, the, the best premier conditions. Sure, they, they, they um, will be. You're right. Always But be. they can be, but, but they can be. They can certainly be minimized yeah. by uh, by by struggle. Always be freeloaders and profiteers. Yeah, they can be, they can be minimized, but yeah, they they will always be them. See, the thing of it is, is that see, our 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 best efforts have never had a chance to totally mature. Why, brother? Because the white supremacy dynamic sees they are a threat to their power. No question. So, so you you can't let the Garvey movement, you can't let that mature. No, and a lot of times, a lot no. of times they use Negroes to help 
bring those movements down. Yeah, they always they they were all everybody has traitors. Fred Hampton died because of a Negro. Yeah, mm-hmm. they all they all they will always be traitors. They, I mean, that, that's just that's just a fact of life. I mean, they're, they're you know they 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 will. I don't I don't care what kind of struggle you in. There's always going to be traitors. Yeah, but traitors can be defeated. Yeah. I mean, you know, Norma defeated traitors, mm-hmm. right? So traitors, I mean, traitors can be traitors can be defeated, but you know, you have to have time for your movement to to grow and develop. But in the instance where you do know that uh there there is a William O'Neill, yeah. Then William O'Neill has to pay the price. Be removed from the planet. The, the process. You know, of, he just has to disappear. I mean, you know, maybe a great white shark, you know, uh, yeah. ate him up off the coast of Australia or something like that. But, you know, so, you know, he has, you know, so you do have to deal with that. You, you know, but you have to have time. And see, the, 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 the power structure, the global European power structure, it has so much fear. Come on. Of our potential, yes, sir. That they have to like, okay, boom. We have to have we have to have power to deal with it too. Like just like like I said, going back to Kim Jong Un, he has the power and the capacity to deal with traitors mm-hmm. without worrying about outside forces being able to stop him from doing what he's doing. Right. Right now, we don't have that power and the capacity. Everything we do is going to be on an individual retaliation level. A couple of things you mentioned, brother, uh, movements being destroyed in the early stages, the embryo stages. I just find it interesting that um, Malcolm's organization, uh, Malcolm was destroyed, taken out of his development at a time when he was developing two organizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've talked on this show numerous times about the necessity of ideology. You know, Dr. Ture told us we get those ideological inklings from organization. He always insisted that uh, we were poorly organized and that uh, the organization is critical in terms of dispensing an ideology on its members. Uh, Invariably, uh, as we have discussed here today, these movements will be infiltrated. Uh, Movements of this particular size, whether it's the Panther or whoever, uh, but during this period that you so well articulated, brother, there was not the developmental continuity. It seems as if we could have moved from ideology, a political line, organization, improved security techniques, you know, given our history. But then once again, you know, these bogus charges, uh, people taken out of their development, you know, suffice it to say, it is just a daunting task. Yeah, it's a daunting task, and I mean, you can even have, you know, a government in Africa, right? Where you were, you were surrounded by nothing but Africans, but then mm-hmm. you have the CIA, you know, working undercover, you know, using, um, you know, Negro agents or whatever uh, operatives. To uh, you know, overthrow your Kwame Nkrumahs. I mean, they tried to overthrow Secretary so many times. Assassination attempts. Secretary had confidence in the masses of the people of Guinea, the same way Fidel Castro had confidence in the masses of Cuba. And so he didn't rely on the army alone to protect him. Just like Fidel, he set up people's militias. You know, when the Bay of Pigs, when when the United States launched, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasions, they told the people, the militias, go go to the warehouses, get the guns. Everybody in the streets fighting to defend, you know, our independence. Secretary had the same thing in Guinea. And, uh, uh, the PAIGC led by Amilcar Cabral was using, Secretary was allowing uh, Cabral to use Guinea as a base, as a sanctuary to attack the Portuguese in Guinea-Bissau. Same way Julius Nyeri was allowing Frelimo to use Tanzania as a base in 
and um and you know all, almost all of the uh revolutionary parties in 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 southern africa had headquarters in dar es salaam and so the the portuguese decided uh that they could pay off some uh leaders of the guinea army and start an insurrection within Guinea and then they were going to launch an invasion from the sea. This happened in, I want to say maybe 1970, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so as soon as the alarms went off, Secretary called out the people's militia because, you know, there might have been a few traitors within the army. The people get their AK-47s all they need to do is be directed. Where is the enemy? The enemy is coming in uh, via the ocean. Mm -hmm. They went down there and wiped the frigging Portuguese out. I'm talking about wipe them out. When Secretary Ray, getting back to what I almost said, when Secretary Ray found out who the traitors were, who had betrayed the Guinean revolution, he had them hung from bridges and left their bodies dangling for days over bridges. That's how he was able to stay in power. Now, what if Nkrumah had had enough confidence and had developed his people to that point? Mm -hmm. Secretary Ray was a much more revolutionary than uh, Kwame Nkrumah. He had much more confidence in his people. A, pe a people's militia may have been able to save Nkrumah in Guinea. I don't, I mean, in Ghana, I don't know if they would have or not, but I'm just saying that to your point in terms of ideology and, and revolutionary development, I mean, a lot of, you know, I have a lot of uh, Secretary Ray's writing. Secretary Ray was way, he did, people don't know, you know, I mean, when they talk about Africa, you know, most, the first thing when they, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, yeah, Nkrumah was great, but Secretary Ray was much more of a revolutionary in, in, ter in terms of his development, in terms of his consciousness and development. Now, you know, once the crew was overthrown, and okay, now we got to do this handbook of revolutionary warfare and all this kind of stuff and whatnot. And that's what Kwame Ture was doing, uh, guerrilla warfare training in Guinea, because he wanted to lead the All-African People's Revolutionary Army back in the Ghana to restore Nkrumah to power. But Nkrumah was, you know, he didn't necessarily want to, you know, he thought that that would bring more heat down on Secretary Ray, who by this time is pretty much, is more, more or less isolated. See, initially, um, you had three really dynamic leaders there in West Africa. You had, you had Modibo Kieta of Mali, Ahmed Secretary Ray of Guinea, and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. And they formed the Ghana-Guinea-Mali Union. They say, okay, we're going to show the rest of Africa how we can unify. And we, we're going to merge these so-called countries into one nation. So how did the West react? First thing they did, they overthrew Modibo Kieta. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they, okay, we took, well, so we took Mali out. Now then, of course, then Nkuma became the next target. But they tried many times to deal with Secretary Ray and like they were repulsed every time. Now people say, oh, he was a brutal dictator. Look, man, you have to do what you got to do to defend your independence and your self-determination. Whatever that is, you got to do. It, it's not like you going out or you, you are trying to take somebody else's territory, oppress somebody, whatever like that. But you got to defend what's yours. If you can't do that, you can't do anything. So that's why I mean, you know, in terms of revolutionary ideology. Yes. Sir. But but they jump on us. I mean, man, look. Well, what, I mean, what we dealing with is just pure sheer ignorance. Not even on that level of traitors. We're dealing with brothers and sisters who are just ignorant to the point where they don't understand the basic value of the life of their brother and sister. And we react and they react out of emotion. Especially a lot of the, the the men who, you know, will shoot somebody just overreacting emotionally. That's really, honestly, that's really uh, a character trait of 
a man a man who's been raised in a single mom single parent uh household who's responding emotionally to everything mm-hmm. versus being able to step back as a man and really think logically about what you're about to do animals brother in human form well re- reactionary masculinity you know does a lot of that i mean you know amos talked about that i mean how how uh all, all of the characteristics that become inculcated in our young males at an early age, uh, you know, a displaced aggression and, you know, deceptive facade and, and uh, all types of, uh, you know, uh, phallic narcissism. You know, Amos deals with all of these things. Maybe we could do a, we a good program to do. Mm-hmm. Take that book, take that little uh, blue book, Yes, sir. We ought to do that. We ought to take. We ought to. We ought to take the. Um, we ought to. We ought to take that book and 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 go through it for our audience because he makes so many good points and 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 almost is correct because what happens is these these young males because of the assault that's on them you know Tupac called it thug life to hate you give little infants mm-hmm. else everybody, um, you know we. Um, there's a lot of confusion, and 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 this society really has 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 put forth a, a concerted effort to create uh, the African personality that uh, is out of balance. Okay, there's no balance between our emotions and rational thought. I mean, even though even though our ancestors in ancient Kemet were the first people to to deal with this and they dealt with it symbolically through the through the concepts of a saw or set and have rule. Uh where that that uh, according to the way Dr. Richard King breaks it down in the um develop in the um uh biological psychiatry, um he talks about how that that they that the objective in ancient Kemet was cerebral unification where you had balance, you know, uh, one side of the brain representing a sword, other side representing a set, and the union of the two representing Heru. And, and what you what you would have is, is, is a person that was operating with cerebral balance, that is balance between their emotions and rational thought. So so what, what we see, and you see it in the gym because you play basketball. I mean, you know, you see it with these young guys that they get mad and want to start fighting one another. And over nothing and it and like I almost said it's all emotions but see what used to just be as as bad as that was it, somebody would just have a fist fight and somebody would get oiled up and that okay that would be the end now as soon as anything happens somebody pulls a gun it's just it, it's just a lack of manhood and a lack of manhood training and when you break it all down yeah and uh <clears throat> You know, clearly, uh, Bobby Wright tells us that for menticide to take place in its final stages, a group, culture, society, a race of people have to basically lose grip of their institutions you know, so that these um, manhood qualities can be developed. Uh, uh, manhood is a creative act and all behavior is social. You know, it's important to say that versus, you know, the perception that, uh, you know, many of our youth, they have this innate proclivity, this gene, so to speak, to, in, to um, that renders them automatically violent, which is, you know, the European's perspective of things that we're naturally prone to violence and some other things. But through that slavery process, the, you know, the European did a successful job with creating a monster. Mm. And oh, yeah. it's just, it's at the point where a lot of our people, ever since then, have remained in ignorance. Some of it has been generational. It just keeps going down the line. Yeah, and that's it, what it, yeah, that's what Amos said, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he said that the uh, the history of the black man and woman in America is the history of the world's greatest and most successful experiment in behavioral modification and attitude change mm-hmm. right yeah yeah, yeah and, and you know and, and, and it started um you know on the islands in the caribbean with the process they call seasoning or what some people call creolization 
But basically, people had to be de-Africanized, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was the, that was the main. That, you know, we got to de-Africanize these people. We got to make them something else. And they, you know, and so they they made they made the Negro and the N word, mm-hmm. and you know that uh, that uh, infantile, uh, immature, undeveloped, powerless personality or spirit still dominates far too many of our people. Mm-hmm. I mean, emotional reaction. Emotional there. reaction. I mean, and and and. And, and and see, and the other thing that they do is they create the optimum conditions under which people are most likely to lash out because of the powerlessness and uh, the uh, all of the um, mm-hmm. you know the war on drugs, the, you yes, know sir. unemployment, all of these kinds of things. Uh, and I mean, it's just not here. I mean, Johannesburg and Cape Town have murder rates. Greater than Chicago, yeah, you know clearly the the same politics that it here in Cape Town are the same politics that it here in Chicago because it's the same domination. It's the same domination, even though it's in blackface. Yeah, yeah. Even though, even though, even though, even even though it's in blackface, I mean because because the ANC uh, cre- uh, signed a deal with the devil, right? Rather, rather than dealing with the Europeans right then, the way you know Chris Hani wanted to do, <laughs> uh, you know they they signed they signed a deal so that they wound up enriching themselves. Yeah, you know this the, the elitist Cyril Ramaphosa is a billionaire, <laughs> right? You're talking about the conditions, brother. I found that very interesting. Uh, you know, the ghetto itself is a diseased institution. You know, I saw that in Baltimore, just from a cursory glance. It breeds rage. It breeds uh, pathology. It breeds self-destructive behavior. You know, and then all of a sudden you have, which is probably a human response to the scarce resource in the 1930s during the time of Joe Kennedy was alcohol. Mm -hmm. And you had Elliot Ness and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. All of a sudden, and from the 80s on, you know, crack cocaine being one of the few growth industries in our community. You know, people clearly, like they always have, struggle, fight, and die using the latest in weapons technology. You know, 1849, the scarce resource being gold. And thus the phrase was termed the wild, wild west. Mm-hmm. But uh, clearly these conditions that you talked about, uh, that becomes the context for much of this behavior. And then all of a sudden you got the bombardment of the de-Africanization, nature abhors a vac- vacuum, we become the white racist criminal in blackface. We got a combustion. Hmm. Yeah. Where does it all end? And that's the question. Um, you said, where does it end? God. It's like we're, we're in a position where, you know, we're trying to, like Baba Makaru always talks about, deconstruct and then uh, reconstruct. And it's a tough task to do especially when you're in the middle of a war um, and you're already fighting on the battlefield, trying to properly educate your people so that these conditions will start to um, become minimal. And when you talk about, you know, men being taught the proper ways to be a man or the characteristics of a man, what it takes to, to be a man, somebody that, that is a builder for the community, somebody who takes care of their family, uh, somebody who is a strong uh, thinking individual and not any emotional reactionary individual, somebody who is not easily swayed by uh, material things and trinkets. Um, You have a lot of other groups who still have manhood uh, initiation processes. Mm 
I mean, every year, you know, Jewish boys still go through bar mitzvahs and become a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the things we got to have more programs in our communities that that do, you know, what the male's place does. Yeah, you know, rites of passage. Rites right? of yes, passage sir. programs. Rites of passage, yeah. Or, or build yeah. schools like Brother Sundiata mm-hmm. is trying to build, or even what, you know, Umar was trying to do. Yeah. Um, what he talked about. Yeah, well, you know, what, what, what he's trying to do. Yeah, he was know. a theorist. <laughs> well, we hope we hope he's successful. We don't know what's going to happen. We hope we you know we hope he's successful. But see, the thing of it is that 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 once again, I mean that if we if we look at the African model, the traditional African model, our ancestors had all of this figured out. Mm-hmm. See, males and females are born. And I don't care what anybody else says. That's all that's born, males and females. Every now and then there might be uh, uh, an hermaphrodite or something like that. But, you know, just very minute uh, percentage. So males and females are born. Men and women are not born. Mm-hmm. There's a pro- Husbands and wives are not born. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a process that people have to go through to become that. And so that's why in our in our traditional culture you had rites of passage, which is manhood training for for males and females in in separate training uh conditions. Right? And then when and when they finish this, you know, in a in a community where people are free, proud and productive Right where you have strong families, where you have uh, veneration for the ancestors, respect for the elders, and see these, even though your mom and pop, mom and pop Swilly and mom and pop Bradley, they ain't know nothing about no African culture, mm-hmm. but those those traditions have been passed down. And it was like, you're going to respect your elders, every adult in the community. And if you didn't, there was consequences, mm-hmm. right? So they were, they were really giving us African training to the extent that they could. And you and I were both growing up under American apartheid, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so our ancestors knew how to do this. They had the way the the um, the what's called the mystery schools in ancient Kemet with the with the ten core values, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? You mm-hmm. know, devotion of purpose, control of thought. You know, all these kinds of things. I mean, you so know, to see the model is there. Yeah, bro. You know, I can remember them talking about rent parties. You well, know, I mean, it's, go ahead. There, there was less of a homeless problem. Because, yeah, because everybody got together. Let's help well, this I mean, person. Yeah, they, they, I mean it was more. Yeah. It, it was more families that were, um, and not even together. It was, it was just more men who were involved in raising. He was in the house. Their children, right? But the man is in prison, and the women are evicted, yeah, right? And even 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 in the homes where they weren't men, there were strong men in the community who were yeah. involved with who raising. Were involved because you know, I mean, sometimes you know. Uh, you know, brother bro man worked himself to death and died early. But what did the community do? Took the responsibility. Yeah. And many did at the sawmill. Right. Up on the pupwood truck, man. Or uh, dislodging the vines on the uh, ships that used to come into the intercoastal waterway. Yeah. yeah no, or, you know, in worst case scenario, the brother was electrocuted and the whole community would take the brother to the funeral home. Yeah, the charred brother. I heard some of those stories. But, um, you know, just a reiteration of what you brothers are saying. And, you know, this is, um, I don't know where I got this from. This is, you know, Amos Wilson all over again. Uh, on the unwhole nations can only produce unwhole villages, which can only raise unwhole children. Mm. Either that was I, Amos Wilson, or uh, Mahabuti. I, you know, it's it's been stated in so many instances, and um, 
And that becomes part of the material context that produces the monstrosity, brother, or the Frankenstein monster that you described, you know, but I feel so blessed to be sitting here because we ultimately at some point saw how grotesque Frankenstein was. And in Mary Shelley's novel, you know, he destroyed his creator. I think the other twofold aspect of that it also is with education also needs to be opportunity. And that's where, like we always talk about on the show, having power is important. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that our ancestors had that we don't is they had the power and the capacity to provide opportunities to the men and the women that they were raising mm-hmm. into adulthood. Exactly. So it wasn't a lack of opportunity now where the education that we're trying to give, the young children are looking back and saying, okay, yeah, some of these are just core values that you should have as a human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but this other education that I know, this other miseducation that I'm getting looks a little bit more enticing because it's an opportunity behind it that I feel is more monetarily valuable for me. Yeah, not in the case of brothers like Baruti. You know, it's just it's basically discarded all of the Eurocentric values. But, I mean, once again, I'm in agreement. Values cannot exist in a vacuum, right. quoting Amos Wilson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these, like the average, just the average. Right, 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 right. These values have to be supported by economic systems, you know, provided by African people themselves. You know, there has to be that type of congruence and that correlation between the values you talk and those values being rewarded. Uh, well, you know when you look when you look at how how this this current situation, you know, I, I had a conversation with somebody, and you know, I was saying that we were we were talking about the 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 strength of the family and the desire for family. Two hundred and forty-six years of chattel slavery, another hundred years of American apartheid, could not eradicate the desire of our ancestors to build families. Now you you, you got two hundred and forty-six years under chattel slavery, where essentially you you really couldn't have a family. You could have a sense of family. But at any moment, the slave master might rape the wife, sell the son or daughter, kill the father. But during this whole Holocaust, they could not kill the desire for family. And the first thing that Africans did upon being released from slavery, from chattel slavery, is they began to rebuild their families. 246 years couldn't destroy that. And so by 1900, in a period of 35 years, about 90% of black children were being raised in a family with a mother and a father. Even if they weren't a husband and wife, which most of the times they were, and a lot of times there was a grandmother or a great-grandmother or someone else in the home. The families were extended, which, of course, you know, is part of traditional African culture. So 246 years couldn't wipe this out. So we go through all of the horrors of the overthrow of Reconstruction, lynching, the destruction of Black Wall Street, uh, the Red Summer, which uh, well, I, I was going to talk about. We don't have time to talk about it. We'll talk about it next week. Um all of the things that we went through under American apartheid still even into the 1960s and in the disruption, the economic disruption of the migrations from the rural, from rural Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and North Carolina and Arkansas, Texas and Louisiana, Texas, Louisiana people basically going to California, Mississippi, up to Chicago, North Carolina, South Carolina, to New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, et cetera, et cetera, you know, Tennessee to Cleveland, 
So this is economic disruption, but still even in the, in the mid 1960s, 75% of our children were still being raised in a family where there were two parents. So 1970, if we use that as a demarcation, between 1970 and the year 2000, period of 30 years, 30 years wiped out what the previous 350 years couldn't wipe out. Think well, about I mean, that. I mean, that's that's when the small has put put everything together to uh, to come up with a lot of these sophisticated plans that destroyed <laughs> many other families. And, and now even a lot of these things that they're doing are also destroying, you know, the white families in the uh, – well, the, you know, the Latinos are holding on. You know, they strong into Catholicism. But, I mean, a lot of these things are also destroying their families, too. It's a lot of people getting divorced. You know, it's a lot of people that are not even looking to even get married or even start a family. It's a lot of people who are confused and are starting the same-sex families. I mean, it's so much confusion built into this American society where it almost breeds the destruction of the family structure, especially for black people because we are in poverty and we already face hardship financially. Um, so for us, you know, it's easy to go get that abortion or it's easy to uh, terminate a pregnancy um, due to the fact that we don't want to bear those responsibilities because of the conditions that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that brings up, I mean, we only got a minute left, but with all these recent bans on abortion, um, it signals to me that the European power structures, you know, has 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 taken notice of the birth decline. That's right. Amongst themselves for a long time, and they see the rise of the the, the Latino American or the I illegal immigrant, and they're trying to create a system where it's going to be harder for people to get abortions so that they can increase their birth rate by any means necessary that they can. Yeah, the, and you know, I think that's something we really need to talk about next week because the thing of it is is that, um, you know, their problem is they stopped having children. Now, how they stopped having children, I mean, is, is a different thing, you know, but their birth rate is well below the replacement rate, not just here in the United States, but all over Europe. Mm-hmm. And even right now, the African-American replacement rate has dropped below the 2.1. You know, to replace the number of people that are dying, each woman needs to have 2.1 children. That's the replacement rate. Okay. And, Af and, and uh, our rate was 2.15 in 2008. The Great Recession had a damaging impact on that and our rate now is 1.89 mm -hmm. but that that's a discussion uh you know that that, that we can continue because it, i got these theories you know beyond the abortion and you know because the, the black male had to be removed from the home he was removed from the home by being removed from the workforce what replaced him was the welfare state so we got to deal with yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of. Facts. It's complex. We gotta understand yeah. that. But it's a lot yeah, of facts. Yeah. But go ahead and end it up, well, brother Jack. Well, yeah. Uh, this is a BB forty eight. Um, once again, uh, this has been a stimulating conversation. This is indeed the African Liberation Media. BB forty eight. BB forty eight. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this: power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes, does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. 
The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.